Please be seated. I'm no weatherman, but the clouds that rolled in on Wednesday evening over St. Simon's left no doubt that we were in for a doozy if you saw that cloud bank coming in. We had gone out to East Beach after dinner to walk on the beach a bit before the girls were going to go to bed. And it was overcast, but it wasn't looking like it was going to storm here. But as we got on the beach and turned around, we saw this incredibly ominous cloud. It had one of those shelf clouds that seemed to go off to the horizon that was very well formed. And I pulled out my app for the weather to see what it was and where it was heading. The wind coming off the ocean was slowing it down and making it slide north, but it was clear that uh, we were in for a serious storm. The woman who cuts my hair actually said she saw it as it was coming across towards Brunswick. It looked to her like a scene from the movie Independence Day <laughs> when the alien spaceships come through the atmosphere and they have these boiling clouds in front of them before they come to destroy all of us. I wasn't predicting an alien invasion when I saw it, but I knew that we needed to get off the beach and head home. And it was quite a storm, as it turns out, just the first of several of the last couple of evenings. So yes, Jesus, I would say that we can predict the weather sometimes by living or looking at the sky. And no, we're not really good at interpreting the signs of the times nearly as well. I think we tend to forget that there are storm clouds that emanate from Jesus' ministry until passages like this when remind us that they're there. We like to think of Jesus in happy and sunny terms most of the time. And yet, as we read the Gospel stories again and again and encounter how Jesus' ministry was received, we realize that there were these ominous and dark clouds overhead nonetheless. Because he was pushing against the leaders of his day. He was an instigator, in a good sense, by challenging things that needed challenge, but it certainly created tension, enough that ultimately he would be killed for it. So casual observers could see that something was boiling as Jesus went and taught. That was part of the reason for the excitement as he traveled. They just didn't know what was going to be on the other side of the clouds. And depending on who you asked, you probably would have heard a different wonderment about whether it was going to be a good outcome or a bad one. Now imagine if this passage in Luke's Gospel was the only bit of the Gospel that we were ever told. That all we hear is Jesus saying, I come to bring fire and division. We would think of Jesus in a completely different way than most of us probably already think of Jesus. I'm particularly grateful that we have other parts of the Gospels like the Sermon on the Mount, like his healing miracles and his merciful treatment of the poor and the outcast. I'm glad we have passages like those off of which we can bounce this one or at least counterbalance it. This difficult section in Luke's Gospel has brought us another difficult saying from Jesus. This is the reason that preachers switched to the Old Testament for a while in year C. <laughs> Our first instinct might be to try again to explain away the difficulty because we don't fully understand it. And actually a part of us probably doesn't want to understand it as we read it. We might also think about ignoring it and pretend Jesus doesn't say these things. But that's not probably a wise option either. I look at this passage and this part of Luke's gospel as the equivalent of that shelf cloud coming 
across the horizon. It tells us that something is coming. But where does this ominous sign come from? How did we get to this point in the gospel today? It follows fairly directly after what we heard last week. In between Jesus' teaching about our treasure and a warning about keeping watch in the night, and this lesson today, Jesus told a story about a servant who has been entrusted with a great deal of responsibility and great possessions on behalf of his master. But he takes advantage of his position of responsibility and wealth, and when the master returns, he punishes him for being such a poor steward. Jesus even says that he beats the servant and would beat him whether he was aware of what he had done wrong or not. Either way, the servant receives the beating. And he caps off that section just before we picked up today with this. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. From the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. So as we're reading along with Luke through this part of his gospel, if we're trying to follow Jesus' thoughts and what it is that he's conveying, it gets increasingly dark over these last couple of paragraphs and stories. He tells us all that our priorities are basically screwed up. He cautions us about being surprised at our master's return. He cautions us about squandering what and who has been entrusted to us. And then he tells us this morning that what waits for us is division and conflict and fighting and families themselves split apart and asks, how is it that you cannot see it coming? Well, we shouldn't feel too bad if we don't see it because no one there to see Jesus and hear him firsthand really saw it coming either. Let's pause for a moment. Each of the Gospel writers takes a little bit of license in compiling their Gospel stories of Jesus. They change a detail here or rearrange something there in order to fit their specific audience and purpose. That's why the Gospels are similar but not identical. This section of Luke's Gospel is difficult in part because we think what we have are a series of things that Jesus said, but not necessarily in the order he said them or that he said them all in a row at one time. As we read through this section of the Gospel, we notice that Jesus jumps back and forth. In one sentence, he's addressing the disciples, and the next, a crowd back to the disciples, back to the crowd. It can be a little hard to follow what Jesus is saying, and that helps explain it a bit. What Luke is doing is taking things out of Jesus' ministry and teaching to address issues that his own community was facing. Issues of wealth and poverty. Issues of dealing with the delay in Jesus' return as a generation of disciples died off without Jesus coming back. Concerns about who had authority to determine the direction of the church. And as we understand why things like this are put together in the Gospels, it doesn't make them any less challenging, any less important for us to pay attention to. If anything, it strengthens it because it helps us realize that what Luke is addressing in his community are some of the same issues that we need to address in ours. Now, if we talk about these dark clouds that Jesus' message brings with him, they are the same dark clouds we would always be able to say the gospel brings with it. Jesus' message was absolutely radical. It's still radical today when we don't water it down. 
his vision of the world, God's vision of the world, is one in which everything will be turned on its head. Think about Luke's inclusion of Mary's song, the Magnificat, at the earlier part of his gospel. We use it in worship regularly, the song that she sang when she realized she was carrying God's child. She said, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. That's one of the things that little baby was going to mean for the world. And just hearing those sentences, none of that is going to happen without some division and some strife. If you're counted among the lowly as you hear Mary sing that song, wonderful. But if we're not, we might want to watch out a bit. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, you know that they talk about Aslan the Lion as not being a tame lion because Jesus is not a tame Savior. When the gospel connects with our hearts, it changes our lives. It uproots what we take for granted and often what we take comfort in. As Jesus teaches and preaches, if we don't see it, we aren't looking. We have missed those clouds. Or perhaps we've just ignored them in the hopes that the storm won't reach us. So what do we do when we are the proud ones and the mighty ones? What do we do when we're the ones with full bellies and the ones who already have the power? From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. We might want to start watching the weather a little bit more closely. And this isn't a fear that Jesus is going to surprise us one day and come back and we will have gotten it wrong and so therefore we'll be in this great cosmic trouble. I think for us it's more about realizing that we tend to look out to sea and enjoy the beautiful scenery there. We don't always turn around and notice the broiling cloud coming up behind us. The church must constantly wrestle to interpret the present time. We must be on the lookout for the places in this world where Jesus' gospel needs to be heard and lived out. We have to ask what is wrong in the world that either we don't see or don't want to see. We have to ask where the gospel is naturally going to bring division into the realms of our culture, our economy, our politics, maybe our family, even our congregations as we embrace and live out this radical gospel. Where is the world desperately in need of the way of Christ, the way that is challenging and different than the status quo? In Luke's gospel thus far, we have encountered a number of potential distractions from the way of Christ as Luke has given them to us. He lists them off one by one as he has Jesus teaching. Things like wealth and lack of faith and fear, putting ourselves first. One by one he addresses them because one by one we need to confront whatever hinders the coming of God's kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray often, forgetting sometimes what is God's will for the world and what exactly God's kingdom 
is all about. The path that we are taking with Luke jumps around a bit and it is surely challenging. But ultimately, as we follow along, it will lead us to that same vision that makes Mary's song ultimately a song of hope. Because she also sang, God has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy. The gospel is a vision of God's ultimate healing and grace and pardon in the face of judgment, of life that comes out of death itself. And we as followers of the risen Jesus are called upon to help that vision come to fruition. And it is a glorious vision. But it is also one that when fully lived out will no doubt uproot our way of life, especially if we cling to the status quo. So I'm not a weatherman. I can't always tell you when the rain is going to start, but I know by looking at clouds that at some point we're going to get wet. That the storm coming might be a challenge to us and scare us as storms sometimes do. I think the storm that we're addressing in this gospel is not a storm that's going to destroy us. It's just a storm that will reorient us to the new realities of God's kingdom much like a storm can reshape the beach. Things with God are rarely what we first expected or anticipated. That's why it is such an incredible mystery that death itself becomes life through Jesus Christ. This passage, I would say, this whole section of Luke is like a cloud on the leading edge of a storm. I don't think we need to be frightened of it, but I also don't think we want to ignore it. 